Hello and welcome. This is Coffeehouse Questions, and my name is Ryan Pauly. This is actually part two of my interview with Greg Kokel on his book, Tactics. So I hope that you enjoy the rest of our conversation. There's another one called, uh, What a Friend I Have a Jesus. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about with this very specific okay. uh, objection that I've heard you use it with. Okay. Did you want me to explain it or did you want to ask a question about it? Oh, yeah. First? So maybe we'll, we'll jump in there. But I want to make one quick comment of what I find interesting and I, is that what you just talked about of the destruction in the Old Testament is that often the objection is if God is good, if he exists, then he would end evil. And here's you know a time where he stops evil. And then, yeah. well, God is evil for stopping evil. And so, it, right, you know, right. pre- being able to present that is trying to get them to think about, well, what would you have done if people were killing and burning their ch- own children alive? Right. Uh, it seems very different. Right. Yeah. So uh, kind of a, a practical question here um, that I know that you use the what a friend I have in Jesus uh, tactic with is, is what if someone comes up and says, hey, uh, you know, Greg, what is your opinion on homosexuality? What do you think well, about that? Okay, I have the same view about homeless. This would be employing the tactic, okay? And it, and this is it's a little easier if the question were, what do you think about same-sex marriage? Okay. Um, because Jesus did speak directly to marriage, but he did not speak directly to homosexuality. He spoke indirectly to it when it talked about marriage. So <clears throat> I would say, well, I, I have the same view about it that Jesus had. You say, well, Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. Well, there's a sense in which he did. In Matthew 19, he was asking a question about divorce. And what he did is he went back to the original creation order. And he said that basically, to put it in summary, that God intended one man to be married to one, uh, one woman to become one flesh, that's sex, for one lifetime. One man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. And by the way, you notice that that, <clears throat> that summary, so to speak, and there's a, it's, a, it's an aphorism. It's easy to remember when you put it that way. One man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime <clears throat> is what Jesus advocated in Matthew 19 and takes us back to the creation order in which Jesus said, in the text says he made them male and female. Now he made them male and female so they could do what he commanded them to do, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So it takes a male and a female to produce another male and a female offspring. And that's how you can multiply. And there is a there is a context in which that's done. And that is one man, one woman becoming one flesh. That is men a one man with one woman in the one lifetime relationship are allowed to become sexually one flesh. And that's it. And that, by the way, that one characterization that Jesus gives in Matthew 9 uh, does deal with the issue of divorce, which you're speaking to directly, but it also deals with every other sexual behavior that's prohibited in the Bible, like bestiality, like fornication, like adultery, like homosexuality, um, because all of those are having sex with someone or something other than your spouse for life. It covers all the bases. So Jesus did give a normative, prescriptive, detailed account of what was right about sex and marriage and, by the way, gender. Okay, and there it is in that one statement. Yeah. So, And generally in our culture, and why this is so important, is generally in our culture, people have a high view of Jesus. 
Yes. And so to say, I agree with Jesus on this, uh, are they going to want to disagree with Jesus if that's what he's taught? You know, I found it interesting, even on Monday, I I was uh, involved in a conversation on, uh, with an atheist on his channel. Uh, But a question came in for me of what do you think Jesus would have said uh, about where humans came from? I said, well, easy. He addressed it in Matthew 19 from the beginning. He created them male and female. Jesus said that God created male and female from the beginning. That's where humans came from. And that's Jesus's view. That's mine too. Uh, yeah. And so it's not just my interpretation or my opinion. Sure. I'm lining up with Jesus. Do you want to sure. disagree with him? <laughs> yeah. And that actually the, is the powerful uh, element in this technique. What a friend we have in Jesus is you let Jesus do the arguing. And so when they disagree, they're not disagreeing with you. They're disagreeing with Jesus. So there's your line. Do you think Jesus was wrong? Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, now this <laughs> sometimes people will say something silly at this point. And they'll say, well, that's in the Bible. And I don't believe the Bible. I said, well, wait a minute. You asked me what Jesus said. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to the place that recorded what Jesus said. How do you expect, what do you expect me to answer regarding what Jesus said if I can't quote the records about Jesus' life? And the irony is, is they are going to quote the records about Jesus' life all the time when it suits them. And they're never going to raise questions about the textual evidence and the Bible's been changed and all this other nonsense, you know, <clears throat> when they're the one quoting Jesus, which they do frequently. Yeah. And this is why it might be when somebody says Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, um, you might ask, why is that relevant? So why does that matter? And then they can then give Jesus credibility because it matters what Jesus says. Okay, fine. Um, how do, uh, what if he did say something against homosexuality? Would that change your view? Hmm. Uh, now that's an integrity question. But notice these are questions, question, questions. Hmm. I'm laying a foundation because then I could say, well, let's turn to Matthew 19. Here's what he said about this yeah. from the beginning. And then now what? So do you think Jesus was mistaken? Yeah, and now we toss it back in their court. I think this is so good because you know, even uh, you know, recently, just uh, last week, I, I had my conversation with Christopher Yuan. Uh, he was my last guest, where we talked a lot about this topic of homosexuality, but we weren't able I to think. get to some of the very practical things of you know, what do I do uh, if uh, someone comes to me and I'm a high school student or my kid is a high school student? How do I train my kid and prepare them when they're in high school? And someone goes, "What do you think about homosexuality and same-sex marriage? How do they accurately respond, knowing the truth that is grounded in Scripture?" And so I think these mm-hmm. kind of practical things are so important. Um, so, uh, by the way, we have some information about same-sex marriage, and I worked through a, a rationale about it, and it doesn't trade on the Bible at all in this particular case, because a lot of people don't care what the Bible has to say. What it trades on is just some common sense observation about what it means to be human, and uh, and why marriage has been what it's been from the beginning of time until just a couple of years ago. It's a common sense notion yeah. that human beings are gendered, are they are they are sexed, if you want to use the non-politicized term. They are male and female for a reason, and the reason is is because they produce that. It's those the joining of those two that produces the next generation, and we have long gestation periods. So it takes 18 to now about 45 years to get a kid out of the house, right? <laughs> and <laughs> for those slow to launch kind of thing, failure to launch. And so this is why you need a stable husband-wife relationship in order to provide stable environments for people 
for children to grow up and move on. Now, that's just common sense, okay? And that's what a marriage is. This is why governments have privileged it, and this is why governments have protected it, because it's the cornerstone of civilization. You know, if, you, if you're a same-sex couple and want to live together and do all that stuff, well, you can do it, but why, why force people to call it a marriage and make act like it's exactly the same as a heterosexual marriage when it's nothing like a heterosexual, heterosexual marriage at all, when you look at the core of what heterosexual relationships provide for society and culture. Yeah, yeah that's so good. So the, um, the the example that you used in kind of implementing the tactics was, you know, if someone's going to make this statement at you, for like Jesus didn't exist, it, it didn't exist, God doesn't exist, God is evil, those sort of things, and asking those questions, what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? And so forth. Uh, what do you then do if someone comes to you and is asking you the first question, like, Greg, why do you believe that Jesus existed? How, how then can you implement a question back? Or it at that point, do you need to start responding with okay, evidence and so, answers? So you're asking, what if somebody uses Columbo against yeah, me? Yeah, so why do you believe Jesus existed? Sure, okay. Um, can you still implement I, the strategy? How would I respond, tactically, or do you want a yeah, substantive how, yeah, answer? Yeah, sorry, yeah, or so both. not a substantive. So so tactically, uh, is there kind of a way that you can maneuver and kind of get back and control the conversation? Okay. Or at that point, do you now need to now provide a substantive answer to that person? Sure. Uh, and that would be my response. And people have said, what if, what do you, what if somebody uses Columbo against you? And, and I asked this question, well, think of the, think of the three uses of Columbo. One is to gather information. Secondly, to reverse the burden of proof. Why do you believe that? And the third one is to use questions to make a point. Well, I asked people, do you think I mind if somebody asks me, what I believe? No, of course not, man. Sit down. You know, I'll <laughs> tell you a thing or two, because I I know what I my, I know I have uh, reflected deeply on my own convictions. Okay, if they ask me, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, I don't mind that question either because I have reasons for what I believe. Okay, that those two questions don't bother me. If, however, there are other questions that I know that they're trying to lead me down the primrose path to make a point. So, okay, let me ask you this, then this, then this, then this. And what they're doing is setting me up for, um, you know, a hit at the very end. Well, that's a little different. And I think there's a legitimacy to that approach. We teach it, in fact, but it also can be abused. And I think people like Peter Bogosian and his crowd, which are the atheists who've been trained by his uh, manual for creating atheists, they use questions a lot. And But they use questions, I think, to to confuse and distort and create doubt in an inappropriate way. And that's not what we're trying to do. And it's at that point you have to maybe stop somebody if you feel you're being led down and, and just make this statement. This is what I say in the book. And it is, well, you know, I'm, I'm a little confused about where we're going here with your questions. It seems to me that you're asking questions so you can lead up to a point you want to make, which is okay. I get it. But I'd rather not go that route. Can you just make the point? And then let me respond to it. And so basically, the rule here is that we are in charge of our of our side of the conversation. We don't have to be pushed anywhere we don't want to go. And so we can just simply say in a polite way, well, I'm not going to go down that road. Why don't you just tell me what your point is, and I'll take it from there. 
Yeah. And I've used that before. Good. And then, you know, and if they are genuinely asking good questions and curious and, hey, you're not prepared to answer, then a simple, hey, that's a great question. Can I have some time to think about it? Right. And right. then you go to str.org or my website <laughs> and you watch videos right. and you figure out how to respond. Um, so then um, th uh, so, uh, th this question also came in of um, how do you know when you should not pursue a conversation with someone? And then how do you graciously exit the conversation with such a person? Well, there's two types of conversations that would be like that. And uh, one of them is where you have uh, a person who just loses interest. And um, if we're reasonably alert <laughs> to other people, we can notice when their eyes glaze over, when they're looking for the exit, you know, and that kind of thing. And uh, that's when it's good to just to try to wind it down. And I, I, I wind down in different ways, depending on the circumstances. I might just simply say, uh, well, there you have something to think about, you know, um, and then change the subject. How about them Dodgers kind of deal or whatever. And uh, and and I and I'm doing that to help the person uh, not begin feeling uncomfortable about the conversations that we've had. So I want, I want to leave behind a fragrant aroma. I don't want to have the person feel like I've just completely overwhelmed them. And for many more aggressive people, this is the way they leave them. They don't stop talking unless the person turns on his heel and walks away and says, I'm done, leave me alone kind of deal. And, and But that leaves a bad taste in their mouth. So I'm just going to try to be alert as much as possible to the um, – expressions and gestures and level of interest that the person might be displaying. And if that begins to wane and it looks like they're, they're getting a little tired of talking about this stuff, then I'm just going to try to graciously um, end the conversation. And it might be, uh, I might say, Hey, um, do you mind if I offer you I mean, something to read. I know you want to get to your stuff. Say I'm in an airplane. I know you want to get to work you're doing and everything, but can I, can I offer uh, something to read for you that might help you or might, you know, stimulate more thinking. And by the way, I tell them, uh, if you don't want to read it, it's totally fine with me. I won't be offended. And I always carry a copy of the story of reality. The icon was just on the screen there and the smaller version of it, the story of why God died and came to life again, which is just the focusing on the Jesus part and uh, the resurrection, etc. And so I always carry it in my bag. And so I offer them and, and I will offer the shorter, the longer, depending on what I think is best for that individual. Or it might be just a small gospel of John. And I'll say, you know, maybe you haven't read Jesus for yourself. Why don't you just let Jesus speak for himself? Here's an account of the life of Jesus from a person who was really close to him. His name was John. So I don't say, let me give you a Bible or a Gospel of John. I try to put it in language that is more, uh, that is less religious sounding to him. So if I can leave them with something, I will. If I, if I can't, if that seems awkward, then I'm just not going to go there. I'll just let the, the conversation die a natural death. So that's one kind of, uh, of ending, and that is the person is losing interest. Okay, yeah, you pick good. up on that, you say, okay, don't beat them up on this. Just let it go. All we're going to try to do, as I say in the book, and this is the gardening principle, is we're just trying to put a stone in their shoe. Yeah. All right. Just trying to get them thinking a little bit. That's good. But there's a second kind of person, though, that you have to walk away from. I know. Is, is there like a phone ringing or something? It sounds like a drumming. But hopefully we'll be back soon.
thank you guys for watching. And then maybe I'll just say here really quick, uh, if you want to, again, uh, help this channel out, you can um, subscribe, like it, comment, share with a friend, family, and also you can visit the Patreon link uh, below to help support it as well. Uh, so I appreciate all the support you guys have done. All right. I, I could okay. not figure out this. Somebody <laughs> sending messages to my daughter. Her phone was here hidden away. There we go. I, I, felt, I heard it clicking for a while, and I was like, what is that? That's interesting. It sounds like a phone ringing, but okay, perfect. Sorry about that. Hey, no, I, that's what happens with live, uh, live uh, <laughs> interviews. I, but no, it's good. I, I put a little commercial in there. So <laughs> Okay. So, uh, so really quickly, the second secondly. kind of person is the person you have to walk away from. And that is a person who um, I call a steamroller. There's a whole chapter on dealing with a steamroller. And uh, these are people that just continue to overpower you with interruption. And there are actually three steps to dealing with a steamroller. One of them is you stop them and negotiate. That's a friendly kind of thing. Uh, the book has details, but the, the second step is you shame them. Okay, that is you stop them again and you speak more directly to the rudeness in a polite way, but in a firm way. And usually those two steps, actually the first step is the one that will uh, usually controls it. So if Ryan, if you were jumping in a lot on me, I'd say, hold on, Ryan, I'm not, I'm not quite finished yet. Can I finish the thought? And then I'll let you respond. Is that all right with you? Notice I'm negotiating a little bit. I'm getting your goodwill response that you're going to cooperate. Okay. But if it turns out that you don't do that and you keep jumping in and jumping in and jumping in, and uh, you've broken faith with your agreement, then I'm going to say, Wait, well, Ryan, hold on just a second. We've got to have a conversation here. I'd love to answer your questions because I think they're sincere. Um, but you know what? You keep interrupting. And I can't give an answer if you cut me off and take us in a different direction. So here's what I'm asking for. You ask your question or make your comment, then you let me respond. And when I'm done responding, then I will be polite to you and listen to your comment. Is that all right with you? Because if it's not, we can't have this conversation. Okay, now that's a little bit more direct, and it would be rude if I started out that way. But sometimes that's necessary for people. Those two steps will stop almost every single steamroller. Somebody's talking over the top of you and interrupting all the time. Incidentally, that second step, you may have to wait a few moments for the other person to stop talking so you can get a word, but you do not want to interrupt them because that's just compounding the problem and then it's banging heads and we don't want that. Um, the third step, first you stop them, second you shame them, third you leave them. That is, if you cannot manage the conversation, if they will not cooperate, you call it off. Jesus said, you know, you don't throw your pearls to swine. You don't throw what's holy to dogs. And I think he was making metaphorically the point that some people don't deserve an answer. Mm. And uh, some people are just going to turn and tear you, trample it under your feet, he says, and turn and tear you to pieces. Okay, that's the time to say, forget about it. Okay, we, we're, we, we're going in different directions here. Uh, this is not a productive conversation, you might say. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll let you have the last word. You give me your final salvo, and I'll let it lie, and we'll be done. And then you move on. So that allows you to break out of an unproductive conversation, but in a polite way, but also maintaining proper control, re, re, uh, retaining proper control. Yeah, so good. Um, well, I kind of I want to kind of check in with you here really quick. We're at an hour seventeen. I know you said you could go over. Um, there are some uh, kind of more content related questions that came in for you, as well as some uh, okay, well, a couple more practical. So, is, okay, no, no problem. This is uh, to me. This is important because I get a chance to reach out of my 
in my my cloister here <laughs> where the, uh, Governor Newsom has placed me, and uh, I can uh, make a difference in the lives of people with Perfect. your wonderful audience. Well, then we'll keep going, and hey, maybe this will just turn into two different shows on the on the radio uh, on radio. Okay. So hey, they'll get all this content as well. So, um, okay. uh, how do you respond to then to someone whose evidence always comes back to well, it could be possible. What could be possible? Whatever they're trying to say, like I believe that you know everything just came about by you know uh, there's you know I don't know whatever. It's like well, it's possible that uh, every, the disciples are lying. Well, it's possible okay. that you know, and it's just all these possibilities. Okay, so it's possible Ryan, that aliens so exist and aliens so Ryan, rose Jesus. <laughs> right, right. So Ryan, so you're. Uh, let's just say that's your question to me. Okay, so Ryan, I'm going to role play here. So Ryan, do you think that everything is possible? That's possible is plausible. Well, it doesn't matter how plausible it is. Sometimes people get very lucky. Right. It does not matter how plausible it is. Well, as long as, it's, as, as long as it's possible. Are you married? I am married. Okay. Um, is your wife faithful? Yes, she is. Is it possible she's not faithful? It is possible. Okay. Is it plausible? No. Does that matter? In confidence level, yes. Yes, of course. So in other words, it does matter that even though something is possible, that it needs to be plausible to be taken seriously. Wouldn't that, that just, right? wouldn't that just be my confidence, though, not what is actually true? Well, it is your confidence in what is actually true. But it could be true that something is happening. She could be cheating on me, even though I'm confident that she's not because it doesn't seem plausible to me. She Yes, she could be. So why is that relevant to any conversation about anything that might be the case? Why is that relevant to your wife's faithfulness? Well, it so seems like walking around doubting your wife's faithfulness, though it's not plausible, even though it's possible. Well, but it seems like the Christian is coming out saying that they know all these things. You know that Jesus nope. rose from the dead. Wait a minute. Let me back up for a minute. You just changed the subject. I was, we're talk, still talking about your wife because I want to talk about the principle here. Okay. So I'm just simply asking, even though, as you said, it's possible that she's not faithful to you, that it's not plausible based on everything that you know, all the reasons that you can bring to bear, then it doesn't make any sense for you to focus on the possibility, but rather on what is most plausible given the evidence and that is that she's faithful. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, but that applies to kind of everyday living, not um, big questions in life that I'm going to you, okay. you base your life on. Okay. Well, uh, okay, that you, you've just said two things now. You've said that um, the questions about ultimate truth and religion are not things that have to do with everyday living. And you've also said that your wife's faithfulness to you is not a big issue. It is a big issue, and it is everyday living, but so is the, what we're talking about here, which is why I suspect most people are rebelling against it, because they know it will influence their everyday living if God is real and Jesus is Messiah, right? But I have good reason to believe that uh, my wife is not cheating on me, versus okay. it's not very plausible that there's an afterlife. Okay. No one has ever died and come back from the dead and told us about okay. it. Okay. Well, that's good. Now we're in a different topic because what you were arguing, first of all, is if it's possible, that means I can dismiss it just in virtue of its possibility. Now you're talking about something better. You're talking about plausible.
plausibility, whether there is any good reasons for it. All right. So and now I'm going to get out of the role play. But you see how I've kind of used my questions and an illustration. And, and I and I have to I kind of have to know what's wrong with the charge that is offered in order to think of an illustration that shows that it's wrong. Notice uh, and, and the, the, the basic principle is that just because something's possible doesn't mean that it's reasonable to believe it's so. Now, this is something people should write down because J.P. Moreland said this to me 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, and I've never forgotten it because it's a very good epistemic notion. The skeptic always wants to go to what is possible as if it's probable. By the way, that's the third step. Possible, plausible, probable. Okay. And, um, and just because it's possible doesn't mean it's plausible. And even if it's plausible, doesn't mean it's, it's the, 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 uh, odds on favorite given the evidence. Okay. So, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, since I know this principle, I'm using questions with an illustration that is emotionally significant to you as a husband, uh, to make the point that possibility does not mean plausibility and possibility is not the important issue plausibility is okay and then that notice how it was really great because now you're rejoin you're coming back you shifted to the plausibility <laughs> point which is exactly what i wanted you to do yeah. and we didn't rehearse this beforehand no we didn't so, <laughs> so, so now we talk well i don't think there are good reasons oh good okay now we're in a whole different situation yeah and and then that you you start to see now what the kind of objection actually maybe is coming down to that needs to be addressed. Yeah, well that's right. But but he's taking the the skeptic is taking refuge in possibility as if this is a meaningful category, and it's not. It, it, is it possible a skeptic is mistaken? Of course it's possible. In fact, it's it's not even possible. Just possible. It's plausible. It's not just plausible. It's probable. In my view, based on the evidence, the skeptic on these issues is mistaken. So the same challenge could be reversed if you wanted to do that. Well, you're just you have the same problem that I do. You know, if if you're if you're talking about well possibility, that's all that matters. Well, it's possible you're wrong too. So what does it leave you? It leaves you absolutely dead in the water if you're just working with possibility. Yeah, you've got to pass that to plausibility. Good. And. So good. Um, okay, so uh, some kind of content questions, I guess, for you, unless uh, other commenters have other questions kind of on the tactical approach. Uh, but again, I think we'll kind of use the tactics in a lot of questions that, that come up. But uh, my sister-in-law is currently um, uh, going on walks uh, with uh, her neighbor, uh, who is Mormon. And so they're getting into conversations on Mormonism. And so uh, the question uh, that she sent in was, how do we know the Trinity is not three separate gods, but actually is... Uh, one God in three persons. How do we know that well, biblically? The fortunate, the fortunate thing between Mormons and Christians is we share a revelation, kinda. What I mean is that LDS give lip service to the authority of the Bible. They actually believe much more in their own documents, which when they contradict the Bible, they find some way around. Okay, um, but insofar mm -hmm. as we are talking about the same Bible. We can then use biblical texts uh, to demonstrate that the Trinity is true. So now this is a kind of a uh, this isn't a tactical question, 
at this point. This is a knowledge question, okay? How do we know the Trinity is true? Well, first of all, we have to have a clear definition of the Trinity. And see, this goes back to our first tactical question, actually. What do you mean by that? So what do we mean by the Trinity? We mean that there is one God that is tri-personal. One God that is tri-personal. That means within the one God, there are three centers of consciousness. The standard way we say that is one God, three persons. But sometimes that language is so familiar, we have to find a different way to say it to help people to understand. One God who is tripersonal, three centers of consciousness in the individual being of God. Okay, so if that's what the definition of the Trinity is, then how do we how do we uh, demonstrate that? Well, that definition entails three things. It entails the oneness of God. It entails the tripersonality, the distinction between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And it also entails the idea that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are fully that one God. They are fully divine, but not to, not not distinct in their natures, just in their persons. Okay, so to demonstrate this in the Bible, we just go back to the scriptures that state such a thing. So the Shema, uh, Isaiah what six four, uh, the Lord your God is one. It's the foundational confession of the Jewish people and of the scripture. There is only one God. I am the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. First commandment. And we learn later on that the reason that you have no other gods is they're all false gods. They're idols. that are, They have eyes they can't see, lips they can't speak, ears they can't hear. Uh, and uh, those who worship them are like them, the prophet says. So um, there's only one God. This is pretty clear in scripture, all right? Um and there's a lot of references you can find for that kind of thing. Secondly, we can see that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are distinct individuals in a certain sense, distinct consciousnesses. And one thing that makes it clear that they're distinct is they communicate and interact with each other. So Jesus, the Son, talks to the Father. The Holy Spirit does other things as well. So they are distinctive. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, okay, so that he isn't the Spirit, he is filled with the Spirit. There at Jesus' uh, baptism, you have the Father speaking to the Son, Jesus, while the Spirit hovers as in the form of a dove. So there you can see in multiple passages their distinction. So when people say, well, look, at Jesus isn't the Father. Look, at he's praying to him. I would say, you're right, moving toward the objection. Yes, you're right. Exactly. He isn't the Father. He isn't the Spirit. Well, then he's different. Yes, he's different as a person. Well, then we have to show that each is fully God. Now, there's no question that the Father is God, but then when you look at Jesus, you see divine characteristics given to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, this is John chapter 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is a very clear way an airtight way of John saying that Jesus, or the one called the Word, was never created. Now, Jesus, the human being, was created, but not the one who became the human being. <clears throat> the Word, therefore, was in fact God, as it says in verse 1, because he's the uncreated creator. He's the same one that's featured in the very beginning of the story 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse three says that that God was the word who did that. Okay. And also we see Jesus being worshiped. And so oh, worship is given to God alone. So there's divine, divine characteristics and prerogatives that Jesus had. Then you see the same thing about the spirit. As you look in scriptures, you see divine characteristics given to the spirit, omniscience, omnipresence, things like that. So we, these three characteristics of the Trinity, one God, three distinct persons, each person fully God, fully divine, uh, these are supported by individual passages. Therefore, we have the doctrine of the Trinity. Hmm. Uh, now, I have a talk at Stand a Reason called uh, the Trinity, a solution, not a problem. And that would be a good place to go to. I think I've written some articles on it, too, that you'll find at str, stand to reason, str.org. Yeah. And I'd recommend that. Yeah. And that uh, website link is uh, posted there down below. Now, along with that, the question here came in from Eddie Vasquez. Oh, hold on. Just one more. Oh, yeah. uh, there's a, there's a, I did write a solid ground. That's our bi-monthly publication, an article on Mormonism. Is Mormonism a... How does the title go? Is Mormonism a uh, uh, denomination of Christianity? Something like that. And there I go into some of these details. Okay, so yeah. that's another resource they could uh, go to. It's, Wonderful. it's in the archives on our website. Wonderful. Um, so question from Eddie on this. is uh, he, he writes, so could it be accurate to imagine three people standing in front of you, but they are one being? Well, this is a, qu a question about imagining. Uh, could it be accurate to imagine three people standing in front of you. It wouldn't be accurate because that is not a clear description of the Trinity because three people standing in front of me are individuated essences. One, two, three. This is the way the Mormons look at it. They think they are three distinct gods. And as their literature communicates, I'm pointing because I got the Mormon doctrine book up there on my shelf, that they are just as distinct as you and I are distinct from each other. That's what the language says. Now, that's not the Trinity. OK, what would, you'd have to imagine is the three different personalities, personages being in an individual body standing before me. So then you would have one being with three centers of consciousness in it. So this, I don't think, is an accurate characterization of what I'm talking about. Okay. Thank uh, you for the question, though, Eddie. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Eddie, for sending that in. Um, when it comes to, uh, uh, I, I guess, uh, one lesser-known Christian idea uh, would be Molinism. And I've had um, um, uh, Tim... Stratton on to discuss uh, Molinism. Yeah. Uh, I had William Lane Craig on about two weeks ago or so, and I asked him uh, about Molinism, uh, and I asked him, you know, why he's not a Calvinist. Um, and so I'd be curious, uh, now that I've kind of had some people describe it for my listeners and viewers, uh, I'd be interested in kind of hearing your perspective on maybe why sure. you're not a Molinist. Yeah, well, um, I, this is an easy one to answer with regards to, in a certain sense, the sovereign grace or Calvinist uh, kind of question. And I've actually talked to Bill on this, so I know that I'm characterizing him correctly here. <clears throat> the Molinist, <clears throat> when you look at the knowledge of God, <clears throat> pardon me, what God knows, it falls, the, <clears throat> theologians put it in three categories. That is the God's, uh, God, God's uh, nat natural knowledge, then his middle knowledge, and then his free knowledge. And his natural knowledge is his knowledge of everything that's possible. 
His free knowledge is the knowledge of everything that's actual. And his middle knowledge is everything that is not actual, but could have been the case given different decisions by human beings. Okay. Um, that's middle knowledge. <clears throat> now I don't, I don't disregard, nor do reform folk disregard the the concept of middle knowledge. That is, God knows the what would have taken place, what people would have decided under other circumstances. Okay, uh, but they usually collapse that into God's uh, natural knowledge. All right, and His free knowledge is what He elects to do and decides sovereignly to do in the world. Okay. Um, what Bill is trying to do, at least his initial attempt, he's done more things with middle knowledge since then. But what Bill was trying to do is to try to characterize election in a way that was consistent with um, libertarian free will on the decision of salvation. Okay. I clarify it that way because I, I believe in libertarian free will, but I don't think it applies to this particular decision. I think this is something that God decides, and then we decide as a result of God deciding. Uh, there's some complexity there, but I won't get into it. Uh, the point is, though, that um, what Bill is trying to do is to try to secure a libertarian free will for decision of salvation, but still have some meaningful sense that God elects those who are saved. Okay, and the way he solves it is with middle knowledge, where God is aware of all of the plausible, not possible worlds, but all the plausible worlds. Okay, words, because there may not be a possible world where I don't get saved of my free will, and there may be a, a no plausible world where uh, uh, some skeptic does get saved. In every possible world, it might be that skeptic will deny Christ. So there are there there are different worlds with different um, populations of people who would receive Christ. Okay, depending on which world is actualized. Okay, based on God's middle knowledge, He knows all these worlds, and so what God's purpose is is to get the most people saved. So He then actualizes the world where most people will freely receive Christ in a libertarian freedom kind of way, okay? Now, what, and this is what election amounts to, according to Bill. So what you get, and I think this is very clever, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's creative, in a good sense, theological thinking, in bringing philosophical elements in to help us try to figure out what's going on. And that's what Christian thinkers did with the Trinity. I think it's fine here. I think Bill's mistaken, though, because uh, when it gets down to it, when it comes to the middle knowledge, doing this particular kind of work, then what's going on really is that God is electing a world, not electing an individual. So it isn't like God wants Greg Kokel saved and is choosing him and electing him to be part of the bride of Christ. No, God wants the most, he wants the, the largest number to be the bride of Christ. And it just so happens in the world where that takes place, Greg Kokel freely chooses Christ. Now, I might not have chosen Christ in another world. And uh, and if that other world was the world when most people would receive Christ, 
since that's what God is after, then he's going to actualize that world in virtue of his middle knowledge, okay? Which means God is not interested in electing me. He's interested in electing a world in which I may, I personally may or may not become a Christian. Okay, now to me, this is the critical in, in point. And I asked Bill directly, so in a private conversation, I said, so Bill, God elects worlds, and that's what election is. He does not elect an individual, regardless of what world he happens to be in. And he said, yes, that's right. Okay, now the, here's this gets to the crux of the issue for me. When I read the text, I get no sense that election has anything to do with electing worlds. But election has to do with the individual's God freely chooses by the kind intention of his will, according to Ephesians 1, to be members of his kingdom. Now, being reformed has its own concerns that need to be answered. I'm simply addressing why, your question, uh, Ryan, why I'm not attracted to Molinism uh, to help make sense of the election issue and libertarian free will. So uh, I and and there's why because I do not think the scripture reflects the Molinist view, the collectivist view of God electing worlds rather than individuals. Uh, it says to uh, in 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 either John six or John ten, all of those that the Father gave to me, I lose nothing but raise them up on the last day. Now that sounds very much like a personal giving. He doesn't say the group that happens to believe in me, I lose nothing. He says, all those the Father gave to me. That doesn't sound like the Molinist characterization of election. And so that's why uh, it's, uh, it's not appealing to me. Okay, good. Thank you for that response. Uh, the question that I've had, and I know uh, is an objection maybe to the more Calvinist uh, approach, is uh, if Scripture teaches clearly that God desires for all to be saved, I think First Timothy talks about that, uh, and it's him that chooses who is saved, and he truly does desire for all to be saved, then why doesn't he save all? Okay, that's a very fair question. It's not just First Timothy, but it's also in Second Peter. Second um, Peter, I think, is not relevant to this discussion because um, it's it's clear uh, it's clear when you do look at the grammar <laughs> that when it says he desires all to be saved, he doesn't say all what. Now the presumption is all human beings. But it it but but the sentence says God is patient towards you, not require not desiring any what to perish, any of you to perish. That's the antecedent, or any of or or all of you to be saved. Okay, so who is the you? And that is the the subject in, in the entire book are believers that are there. Okay, and that's so, in First Timothy. That's no. That's the oh, first, that's the Peter. That's the second Peter passage. Okay. All right. However, the first Timothy passage isn't like that, and um, and so I have a different response there. In First Thessalonians chapter four, it says, he, "And this is God's will for you, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality." All right. So God's will is that we abstain from sexual immorality. Um, does everybody do that? No. So 
there are there are things that God wants that he doesn't fulfill, but he expects us to fulfill. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think this is where my question comes in, and I, I guess maybe where my one hang-up is, is that then appealing to that seems to be appealing to then, uh, well, why aren't we abstaining, even though God wills for us? Well, because he has given us the free will to yeah, which make I our choice. Debate. So if we, we we do have the liberty to follow our impulses, so if and we, we do that, so then and if, we do that. Okay, perfect. So and, then if and, we and, okay, go. And, yeah, well, let me flesh it out a little yeah. bit more, and then I'll be glad to respond to, to more. <clears throat> a little bit of a steamroller going there. So notice how I just neg- <laughs> <laughs> no hey, don't, don't call me a spe- don't call me a steamroller. No, I'm just kidding. So that was the first step. So I just a little no negotiation. Yeah. Fine. So um, what what we have is. Um, uh, we have a category of God's will where he says, I want this, but it's, I am not going to accomplish it for you. I am going to let you accomplish this. Okay. We might call that God's moral will. All right. And so I think that what, it, what you, and then you have things that God says, I'm going to do, and no one will be able to thwart it. And there are a lot of verses that say nobody can stand against God's will. Uh, who can oppose his will, you know, kind of thing. Well, that's a different kind of will that can't be opposed. So the phrase God's will is actually used in, in equivocal ways in the scripture, one meaning sovereign, one meaning moral, okay? So it seems to me certainly plausible at this particular point not merely possible, but a very plausible take on the first Timothy passage that that what God is saying is that he has to have a desire. He doesn't want rebellion. He doesn't want he wants people to repent. He wants people to bend the knee and come to him. Okay, and he wants all people to do that. Okay, Um, but now this the fact is on both Arminian and Calvinist view, we know that all people aren't going to do that and uh, they're not going to do that because their wills are bent against God. And this is standard Christian theology, anthropology. You know, we are born into sin, and so we are, wills are bent against God. So God then has to do something in order to counteract that so that some will be saved. And really the question is whether or not he takes everybody half the way, which is the way I would characterize the Arminian view, through provenient grace, or he takes some people all of the way, which is the Calvinist view. And that would be, that would be, I think, a more robust understanding of election, because that's what election means, that you elect certain people, not everybody, for, for something. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and by the way, it's the elector elects the electee, not the other way around. We don't elect ourselves. God does the election. So I think that um, this certainly way of looking at that passage in First Timothy makes sense. We understand that in a moral sense. Yeah, this has got what, one, what God desires in one sense. But sovereignly, he is going to act in such a way as to accomplish the salvation of a smaller group of people, not everybody. And he's going to let everybody else continue to live in their rebellion and therefore be uh, worthy of judgment by him. So um, so the passage of 1 Timothy does not create an insolvable problem for Reformed theology, because there's a certain consistent way of understanding that in the way of other verses. Whether it's persuasive or not is another matter. I think what somebody needs to keep in mind in light of a passage like that is the multitude of other passages to seem not to be equivocal, in my view, but univocal in their expression of the sovereign grace of God and distributing it as he 
wills. And so, uh, though I think there are problems on both sides, uh, there are the, most of the verses that people raise that are problematic for my view on this can be answered in a way that's fully consistent with Scripture and fully plausible and fully consistent with the Reformed view. However, if I took the other view, I I have a lot of verses I cannot reconcile yeah. with the uh, the Arminian view that that Bill mm-hmm. Bill uses, which is why, by the way, I think he he pursues the Molinist project because he's trying to find a way to answer those in a way that's philosophically and theologically satisfying to him. Yeah, no, I think and for him. For- yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I guess so. The one question I've had, and I've kind of heard you explain it in that similar way before. And so the one question that comes up for me, and maybe if I can just get some clarification, is um, from the Calvinist perspective, it seems like uh, the 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 issue of who is saved is part of God's sovereign will. Um, Right, that he is electing, um, but then in response to like the passage in First Timothy, it's saying, well, his desire for all to be saved is part of his moral will, and that there's something that because it's part of his moral will that human beings can, so to speak, thwart, because um, it's not part of his sovereign will that he will play out. Correct, and uh, I think it's a fair way of putting it. Okay, so then that so then that leads the question in my mind where I go, okay, well then which one is salvation? Is salvation part of his sovereign will that he destines, or is it part of his moral will that human beings can thwart? It seems to kind of, his desire for people to be saved is moral will, but the actual saving is sovereign. Uh, it seems like we're thwarting one through the, by putting it in the category of moral will. Does that make sense? Um, I, I think it does, but let me try to answer it. It, it, uh, cause it I, apparently seems like uh, a, a bit of a, conundrum or a contradiction, and, and I don't think it is. Um, let's go back to First uh, Thess 4, uh, our sanctification, we abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian at 23, I didn't have all that squared away, you know, and I can think of times uh, uh, since then, and not even just directly sexual immorality, but but sexual, uh, it, other behaviors like uh, um, in my mind and whatever, I, I, I can think of times when God sovereignly intervened to protect me from being sexually immoral, immoral in one sense or another, okay? So even when it comes to God's moral will that is expansive and covers everything, there are times he will sovereignly intervene to make sure that, in my case, in his children's case, that that, that morality is sustained and not violated, okay? And I, I, that's just one example. There are lots of examples. We pray, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we want God to answer that prayer for us, to protect us from doing things we shouldn't do. And so there are ways that God will sovereignly intervene in ordinary things in life to prevent us from doing immoral things because of the way he acts to keep us from doing it. And that may be working some way on our will, and it may be working on circumstances so the uh, unrighteous will that we're expressing at the moment doesn't have a chance to be fulfilled. Okay, so um, if God, if, so God's moral will is something that he has for everybody, <clears throat> and uh, on balance leaves it to us to fulfill, but he can still intervene to make sure that we do the right thing if he purposes to accomplish that whether it's in standard behavior or in the issue of salvation. And so I don't see any contradiction between those two notions. By the way, the categories are very clear in Scripture. And without those categories in place, you have a contradiction. 
because you have some things God, God's will that can be violated, and sometimes it can't be violated. So what is it? Well, it's, it can only be two different elements of God's will or aspects. And, um, and, and God can intervene anytime he wants to make sure that we fulfill his moral will. And I think this is certainly the case with regards to salvation. Hmm. He wants us to come to him, so that expresses a moral will, and he guarantees that there will be a bride of Christ. And he guarantees that by his sovereign grace. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, definitely. You know, I'm thinking about how I'm going to end the show and all this kind of stuff and what's coming <laughs> up. So I'll have to go back and listen myself. Uh, but I definitely appreciate you uh, answering that because it's a question I've had for you for some time. Um, so, and again, I am so grateful. We're, we're an hour 50 in. I'm so grateful for you spending this time. Uh, I want to end with one more question. Um, and this question actually was asked by the, the, uh, my brother, uh, uh, Two weeks or with William Lynn Craig, uh, then he wanted me to ask it again to uh, Christopher Yuan and, and actually asked me to ask it again to you to kind of get some different perspectives. But uh, in this, what we just did of this kind of theological disagreement, um, he asked the question of how do we how do we differentiate? How do we decide between different theological viewpoints, especially when it comes to one like uh, pro-gay theology of, do I trust the Greg Kokels and the Christopher Yuans and the Ravi Zacharias's, or do I trust the Jen Hatmakers and the Matthew Vines? And so uh, what would well, you say to Christians on how do we, uh, how do we, how do we uh, solve kind of the, the, the disagreements that seem to be a lot more pressing right. the uh, impasse, issues? So to speak. Yeah. Well, the answer to that is you don't trust any of us. What you trust are the are the legitimacy of the scriptural arguments that are offered by any of us. You don't trust us. Yeah. We are not the authorities. But I can say to you, for example, I say that there is nothing positive that the Bible ever says about homosexuality. Every single time it's mentioned, it's mentioned pejoratively. And in invert most of the references, it says that there is a, it indicates that the reason it's wrong is it's a violation of God's purposes. Okay. God set things up one way and human beings, you know, disregarded what God provided for them. This is very clear in Romans one, the woman, they disregard the woman and they burned a desire towards men. Okay. So what I'm offering is a biblical rationale. And uh, it ought to, it strikes me that if homosexuality is just fine with God per se, why is there not a single positive reference to it in Scripture? And why is there not a single positive role model? And then what does one do with Jesus' statements uh, uh, in Matthew 19 that go back to Genesis chapter 2, where God sets up the pattern? Okay. Uh, and what do we make of the bride of Christ? when Jesus is the groom and the bride is the bride and the church is the bride. These are all significant details that are scriptural that inveigh heavily against any positive attitude people would have from scripture about homosexuality. Okay. So, but notice what I've done. I'm trying to give scriptural arguments. Now people can say, I like that or I don't like it, but they have to be very careful. Strictly speaking, it's not what you like. Yeah. It's what's true. And if the arguments that are being offered are, are compelling arguments from the scriptures, and what one has to do is, with regards to Matthew Vines is look at the rejoinders to the claims that they make. 
um, then 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 I, you got to go with the truth, no matter what it is that you like, and uh, because these are weighty matters. Yeah, Paul says the homosexual the homosexuality homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians, chapter six, and verse nine, and that's a heavy statement. Yeah. So well, I get this one right. Yeah, I so appreciate that. And it's very similar to what uh, Christopher Yuan said of don't trust me, don't trust these people, trust uh, what scripture says. And I think the issue there is that Christians maybe need to be a little bit better at uh, reading and interpreting scripture well, uh, rather than yeah. kind of just saying, well, I'm just going to trust this theologian. And so uh, I have sent out some emails to uh, different individuals to try to uh, schedule and plan a show coming up on some basics of uh, biblical interpretation and hermeneutics. And so hopefully that yeah, is something well, coming great. up. Let me ask one more sentence here or so, yeah. uh, 30 seconds here, and that is, regarding this issue, one would also have to accept that the, that the people of God, both the Jews and Christians, for thousands of years have misunderstood their own revelation. Mm -hmm. And now, in the modern era, era, we somehow get something that nobody else ever saw. We know better than they do. Now, that's a pretty strong statement to make. Yeah. Wow. Well, Greg, thank you so, so, so much. I so greatly appreciate you taking the time. The ministry that you've done with Stand to Reason, the books that you have produced, I know it has radically transformed me and how I present and talk to people. And uh, thank you for coming on the show and presenting this well, as well. Ryan, I, I appreciate all that you're doing. You do a great job of the show here. You've d given us tremendous help in the past, and uh, I look forward to a long uh, future and a partnership and relationship with you and the work you're doing. Thank you so much. All right, buddy. All right, for all of you who've joined in this conversation, go pick up your copy of Tactics if you have not done so already, the 10th anniversary edition. Get this new updated information. And again, as always, if it, we've given you a lot to think about. This is two hours, it's a lot to watch. But if it has encouraged you, caused you to think deeper, please share it with someone else. Follow on social media so you can continue to think deeper about Christianity. If you wanna support financially, you can do so. The Patreon link below. And then next week, this book right there, Doubting Towards Faith with Bobby Conway. That's going to be the topic of how do we deal with the doubts we have. So thank you so much for joining me. Have a blessed rest of your week and whatever you're doing. Stay safe. Stay healthy. This is Ryan Pauly. God bless, guys.